Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Kai Podcast. This is our fourth episode, and I'm super excited about it. Uh, my name is Vidanth Nair. I'm one of the co-founders of Eclipse AI, and I'm joined by a really awesome guest today. Um, Lewis Shulman is head of growth at Orbit Metrics, where they help businesses and agencies really take control of their data by integrating with, integrating it with a variety of systems and just making it easier to comprehend. Um, and as a side job and something I think that is almost as cool, even cooler actually, is he's the host of the Lewis and Kyle show, um, where they're doing a lot of great work. Their podcast is, I think, almost up to 150 episodes, which is uh, quite a feat. I'm sure he'll have some tips for me today on how to become a better uh, podcast host. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much, Lewis, for joining us. I'm super happy to have you. Vidant, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate all that. Yeah, of course. Uh, so let's just dive into it. Um, you know, Lewis, uh, to put some context, uh, is I guess a little bit fresh maybe in the industry out of college a few years out. Um, but I think he's taken a really, really non-traditional path um, compared to maybe a lot of his peers and his cohort and things like that nature. Um, you know, me being a college student and a founder, I think that um, I can relate to that a little bit. But Lewis, I, I want to hear from you, like, why take this jump into this space, into this world. Um, you're a very talented guy. I saw, I think you, you had really good grades and I, th- I think the options were endless. So, so why this route, why this path? Yeah, it's a really tough, not tough question, but I'm a bit of an overthinker, let's say if left to my own devices. And early on, I don't even how early on, but at some point I realized that that was not gonna be super constructive uh, because the world doesn't reward people who overthink things, uh, the reward the world rewards people who, who do a lot of things, right? And a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking and very little time doing, and I wanted to avoid that. So kind of going into my final semester of college, I had pretty much no plan whatsoever in terms of what I wanted to do specifically. The plan was, like you pointed out, to, to finish with those good grades, and then once I graduated, have the space to put other thoughts in my head. So instead of like cramming my brain with the material that was important to me at the time, which was those classes in my final semester, uh, and trying to and try, I didn't want to squeeze that into my mind with also all of the added pressure of what job do I want to do, where do I want to go, what all of the first things next question. Uh, I was in a position, fortunately, where I took a scholarship, so I wasn't like in any pressing need to pay off debt or anything. So I, that was a luxury that I was fortunate enough to have. So my plan was just to you know move to my parents' house where my expenses were low and the cost of indecision were also low besides opportunity cost and kind of have some spaciousness to like explore and think without pressure to really accomplish anything else. And uh, obviously some decisions were made before that, that like even that in and of itself is somewhat untraditional, though not extremely so. I think a lot of people do take time off. Uh, I think it's part of like the natural, natural cycles. So I was someone who pushed pretty hard, pretty nonstop for pretty much all of college. And uh, obviously everyone has their own definitions of what hard means and what nonstop means. But at least by my standards, I was putting what felt like a high percentage of my total capable possible effort for long stretches of time. So I was like, I think it's important that I decompress for a period of time before the next stage of my life, which is the first stage of my adult life, really, uh, which is like diving in really deeply to whatever my career was. So that was a big piece of it. And then I can uh, you know, pause there for additional questions or I can keep going, but- Yeah, no, I- I think uh, something that's interesting there is, you know, talking a lot about your opportunity cost, um, you know, even those, those, you know, few months of being at your parents' house and, you know, maybe not earning, but keeping your costs low, there's, there's still opportunity costs, like, as you mentioned, that you left out there, like, how did you kind of weigh those risks and costs in your head and, and kind of do that analysis for yourself and, and figure out what trade-offs that, that you were looking to make? Yeah, so I think 
first of all, holistically, there's opportunity costs to focusing because there's the financial lever and there's the career lever, but that's not the entire diagram of your life, right? If you're diagramming the things that are important as a human, as a young adult, uh, deciding what to do with your career is not the only one that matters. And as someone who, again, cared very hard about school and my grades and uh, the podcast, which I had at the time as well, I had already been doing it a year and a half leading up to graduation of college, I had really done a good job, let's say, of investing a lot of effort and capital into, and capital not meaning finances, but capital in terms of just like emotional capital and social capital. And just a lot of my headspace was dedicated to succeeding and giving myself opportunity for success in terms of careers. Uh, so like I really filled that cup all the way up in terms of like beyond what was necessary to have a slate of options I'd be happy with. And, you know, on the flip side of that was as a young person spending less time on fun, right? Like less time on social life, less, I, I went to college out of state. Uh, so less time with my family. And so some of the opportunity cost in terms of like jumping straight into career progress and jumping straight into being, you know, going from no income to a, a good income, uh, that also carried with an opportunity cost of like, you know, not taking a vacation, which was in many, in many respects much needed, not spending a lot of time with my parents, which I thought, you know, and still think was a really valuable use of my time. And again, not just my parents, but cousins who live at home and, you know, older relatives. So the opportunity cost was not purely like, oh, I'm, you know, let's say I was going to make a job out of school making 5k a month. I mean, the opportunity cost was, you know, 15k. If it was a job that was 100k, it would have been 8k a month or whatever. But so that's one piece of it is like, consistently reminding myself that holistically career is just one piece of the whole picture. And as someone who got good grades uh, in a society that's only as competitive as ours is, not to say our society isn't competitive, but it's not extremely competitive. You can set yourself apart pretty quickly, in my opinion, just by taking a couple of actions that the majority of people are unwilling to take. Uh, so that's, that's a piece of the puzzle. And then in terms of the actual financial part of the equation, as someone with entrepreneurial ambitions and as someone who studied uh, or as someone at the time with entrepreneurial ambitions, fortunately, I'd like to say I'm actually doing the entrepreneur thing right now. Uh, I don't even think I'd like to say, I just am, as a matter of fact, I'm doing it. You so, are, you are. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is cool. Uh, the identity things are you know important to get right. But the, oper I, I have a saying, I don't know if it's like, if it's mine, but it's something I say, which is that if we're right about this, like we're gonna be right in a big way, so it doesn't really matter. So like if I'm right about entrepreneurship and if I'm right about my ability to succeed in entrepreneurship in the ballpark, right, in the order of magnitude that I believe I can succeed in, making 30,000 less dollars really shouldn't matter. Making 15,000 less dollars really shouldn't matter. Like if I think I'm going to succeed on the scale that I think I'm going to succeed on, then literally 30K is like what I trade that for taking a couple months to like decompress after college, spend time with my family, explore my interests, do all those things. It's like, of course not, or of course, whatever. I think it's clear, whatever, whichever way I would have gone, would have been going with that. Uh, so that's, that's another big piece of it. And cause on the flip side, if I'm wrong about that, right? If I'm wrong about my ability to succeed as an entrepreneur, if I'm wrong about the order of magnitude on which I'll succeed, then what's the consequence of that? Well, I'll be working my whole life anyway. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. what's an extra what, three months of working at the end? Yeah. I'll retire at 53 yeah. and a half instead of 53 and a third, right? That's the difference. So yeah, yeah, no, when you frame it like In that, the it things. Seems, yeah, yeah, it almost seems like the, like the choice is, is too easy. Um, but I think it's, it's unfortunate the way, like you mentioned, um, you know, we've been groomed, especially in college that, um, that it's not really framed like that. And, and it's, it seems like a almost indomitable feat. Um, but 
you know, you now have this conviction that if you're right in a big way with this whole entrepreneurship thing that um, you'll be very successful. So what was that first step for you from, you know, you were, you were mentioning that thinking phase that you were in to the actually doing phase, you know, how did you like tangibly start that motion and, and what did that look like for you? Uh, so I think the, the biggest piece of it was turning on the pressure, right? So like I said, I was, I had infinite runway in terms of like living at my parents' house and not having expenses. Uh, y'all can do the math. If you're spending zero money, uh, you can do that for an infinite amount of time. And I realized that was not, uh, in terms of like where I want, I didn't want to do that for five years. I didn't want to wake up and be 26 and say, wow, I've just spent, you know, five years in my parents' backyard reading books. Didn't spend any money, but I also didn't really win at life either. Uh, and I think that the phrase win at life could be problematic, but I think that's not the most important optimization to make. I think that one point quickly on what you said in terms of framing, like the framing that's kind of fed to us by college. One thing I did very early on, right? You can like, metaf uh, you can visualize this in like, like a Game Boy or like a computer, right? And like what you're unplugging and what you're plugging in instead. So it's like, who are you taking advice from? Like, who are you listening from in this world? And through podcasting, both before I had my show in terms of just as a person who listens to podcasts, uh, and as a person who reads books, I basically took out from the virtual computer that is my brain, right? The flash drive of like, what my professors say about the world is useful. I like took that flash drive out and like threw it in the nearest lake. And instead I was like, here's someone who I actually want their life. I actually admire their outcomes. I would like be happy if my life looked like theirs, right? Whether that's an author of a book, the host of a podcast, the guest on a podcast, etc. I put that instead. And so with a lot of the framings that I've come to, like those were very much inspired by the mentors I swapped out because I didn't consider, obviously some of my professors were phenomenal, some of them, some of them I thought were not phenomenal, which is just a very fair statement and without naming names. And the, the point is though, I traded role model. I didn't let people who aren't my role models influence my beliefs. If you're not a role model, I don't care how you see the world. If you are a role model, I'm going to pay very close attention to how you see the world. And so that was a really important distinction about like how I kind of frame things differently. Cause for me, it's like how else, based on all of the teachers that I plugged in to, how should I see the world? What makes sense based on how would my role models think about this? Not how do the people who I don't want to emulate think about this? Cause that's kind of irrelevant to me. Um, in terms of actually taking action, I, back to what I was saying about kind of indecisiveness and, and overthinking. I uh, had taken three full months to, you know, vacation, hang out, do the podcast, do some writing, whatever. And then I realized, I'm like, okay, I have no, nothing's calling to me really clearly. Uh, you know, my friends who had gone on more traditional paths, they'd already started their jobs, they're already making money, they'd moved to new cities, they had apartments, they like started to like really live out their lives. And I'm like, okay, it's probably time for me to like do start doing something. And I didn't have a clear enough picture of like, what business do I start? Or how do I start making money? Uh, so I just had to narrow it down kind of arbitrarily. Uh, there's a term called positive constraints, which is basically when you purposely narrow your options in a situation just to make it easier to make a decision. If you Google that word, uh, and it's, I don't know, within two years from now, I'm going to say, I hopefully still rank number one on Google for a blog post I have about this term, which is just a fun fact, uh, positive constraints. But I realized I needed to constrain the options in front of me because I had created too many options. I'm like, I could go work in investing. I could go work as a software engineer. I could go work as an analyst. I could go work in sales. I could, I don't know. Uh, so all I was able to narrow it down to was crypto. I was like, that's the only thing that like feels broad enough to satisfy my like broad curiosity while also being specific. I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I need to, I need to like, I can't say every job on LinkedIn is a potential fit for me. That's just not gonna work. And 
So let me narrow it down to crypto. And that's what I did. And then I also uh, had a friend call me one day and say, hey, I'm dropping out of college to take this job in Nashville and I need a roommate. I know you haven't really decided what you want to do with your life yet, but maybe you could come out here. And he was getting, his job was in crypto. So it's like, that makes sense. I'll live with this guy. We'll be a super into crypto. He'll be in the industry. He'll be plugged in, whatever. And so I basically moved to Nashville. And then I went from spending $0 a month to spending $2,000 a month just on rent. And I'm like, I can't do that for that many months. The, the number of months of runway went from infinity to fewer than infinity uh, by a big equation. So then I got there and I was like, I can't do this for very long. And within, I don't know, probably five or six weeks, I was working at the same company as him in crypto. And kind of the conclusion that I came to and one of my kind of general beliefs about entrepreneurship since then, that I do feel confident enough to extrapolate is that the, the key to, you know, doing anything is to, is to do something. That doesn't sound like super poetic, but I think that a lot of people, when they say they wanna be an entrepreneur, uh, first of all, have an identity, kind of ego-driven belief that the only way to become an entrepreneur, therefore, is to become an entrepreneur right away. Meaning like to go from not owning a business to not running a company, to not having a project, to having a project and owning a business and running a company. And I think that they're the intermediate steps of having a job, while it's a hit to the ego, it's, it's a productive hit to the ego because I think the constructed ego that is hit is an unproductive construction. And so my framing was the best businesses, and this is something I learned from doing several hundred interviews, the best businesses emerged, not necessarily by accident, but in response to a specific problem. And most people, when they're doing nothing other than sitting in their homes, thinking about what businesses to start, don't have a list of actual problems in the world that makes sense for them to solve in a profitable way. Whereas when you enter the business world or you do literally anything, when you like engage with society in some constructive way, all of a sudden problems, uh, and the word problems could be difficulties or, or inconveniences or challenges, uh, start to reveal themselves to you quite often. So when I worked in crypto, I quickly learned that marketing teams in general, so I worked in marketing within crypto, marketing teams tend to be really disorganized when it comes to tech because most marketing people are not tech people. So I entered the world and I encountered a problem. And then that's, you know, I could tell the rest of the story, but like pre present day, what does my business do? Is it like, you know, helps marketing people with tech. So I like, that's kind of the formula. It's like, don't just like pull, the, like the way to start a business, if you have nothing going on, is not to start a whiteboard or it's not to go on Amazon, buy a whiteboard and, and say businesses to start. Uh, and it's not to go to chat GPT and say businesses to start. Cause that's like the, the modern day equivalent. It's to like start a project and like realize things and encounter people and let problems present themselves to you and then just kind of solve those problems. Yeah. Wow. I think that's, there's a, there's a lot to unpack from that. One thing that I think is, is a little bit funny is that um, you mentioned the whiteboards thing actually at our, at our HQ, which is really just our Mel and Ben's apartment. I think we have like seven or eight whiteboards, like full size whiteboards. And I always joke that we might have the highest whiteboards per capita. Um, the side of the Mississippi River, but um, anyway. So, but but I agree. I, I Whiteboards are productive tools once you have a business that you're brainstorming. There you go. There you go. Yeah. No, I, I have. Think, I think yeah. Two in here. They're large. Mm -hmm. This one's behind me. It's big. Big. It's super helpful. Uh, but it's not a list of business ideas. It's a list of ways to improve the existing idea I have. Right. Yeah. It's a big difference. Yeah. I, and I think I, I see that. I see that tendency as well. Like everyone wants to build x for y they want to you know use crypto to do something to emulate another business and everyone already has solutions and i think actually the solutions are almost easier to just come out of thin air to brainstorm to your, yeah. your whiteboard yeah like yeah it's the problems that are that are important and businesses are in business to solve people's problems 
And I think your business you has a super clear problem statement. Yeah. Which yeah. is why it I makes mean, sense. We, yeah, we are podcasters. We felt a problem. You know, then from there we decided how do we solve this problem? And the solution yes. that we made was was it wasn't the other way was around. Built right? was built with the problem in mind. And and we didn't befit it exactly. And so I think yep. that's that's really, really good advice for anybody who wants to start something. You know, maybe it is the only advice. Right Don't obviously. ignore that advice. As it, I think second time founders sometimes can like get past that somehow, maybe because they've. Re but if you're a first time founder, just don't solution first. Uh, you, the the exception is if you build something as a side project for fun, right? Side project for fun yeah. that just kind of naturally catalyzes interest. Just like Facebook wasn't necessarily a solution to a problem. And I hate like giving the example of Facebook, but someone's going to be like, well, what about Facebook? And it's basically was well, something that started as a hobby. Like Facebook never intended to be a business. It just like turned into one because as something that interesting, it got enough attention to monetize the attention. But again, it's super productive. It's not super productive to assume that like you're the guy with that. It's like, if you launch something for fun on the side, that is just literally a fun thing. And then it happens to go insanely popular. Then you can turn that into a business. But if your goal is like, I'm going to deliberately start starting today, start making money as an in some way that is entrepreneurial. The answer is not solutions first. Yeah, I completely Period. agree. And so, okay, now we have this problem, you know, start orbit metrics, orbit metrics is the solution. Um, you know, maybe let's skip past like the infancy, infancy stages of, you know, setting up orbit metrics, figuring out the processes, the products, like now you're at a stage where you guys can say, you know, like we're scaling, we're growing, um, having already served a, a bunch of different customers and clients in the past. Uh, what are you thinking about? What, what do you do day to day at, at Orbit Metrics to make sure that you guys are growing and scaling? Yeah, so present day, it's April of 23. And my business partner started Orbit roughly April of last year. Let's call it like roughly. And I joined in August. So he had started the business for about four to five months before I had gotten on board. And what we do present day is he does the vast majority of the client work. So Orbit is not necessarily a product yet. Uh, nor do we have, when I say yet, that's not like we have one in stealth that we're waiting to tell the world about. We, d we don't have a product yet. We have services. People ask for a solution. They need help moving their website from Google Analytics, Google's Universal Analytics to Google Analytics 4. And we say, great, we know how to do that. This is how much it'll cost you to do it. And they say, great, and we do it. Uh, right? That's like one example of a problem that we solve. But there's no like self-service platform where you go and put in your credit card and that happens. It's humans are doing the labor still. And then there's like a variety of other similar technical problems that we have the capacity to solve. Uh, so what I do at present is I find business, right? So that's why the role is growth. And growth is another way of saying, co I mean, I'm growth slash co-founder, right? So if sometimes I do things that would not be categorized as a typical growth person's job function, uh, but that's not like, you know, a crazy important distinction. I think people can gather that as a team of two, I do things outside of the scope of my job sometimes. Uh, and a team of two full-time. I mean, there's probably a dozen people that help us do things in terms of specialists that we subcontract components of projects to, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Uh, but my partner makes sure that anything that I sell in terms of someone gives us money for an outcome, he makes sure it gets done and obviously gets done to top quality. Then I make sure that he has a lot of work to do. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the division of responsibilities. Uh, what that comes down to, right? So it's one, masterminding the marketing channels that I think will work. And then it's executing, whether that's me or someone I've delegated it to. So like I have someone who does cold email for us because he's better at it than I am and he is more efficient than I am. So just checking in with him, but like reviewing his strategy. And then I kind of manage the pipeline. So I actually kind of like also, you could call it an SDR 
right? Like I take the sales calls. I'm the one taking the sales calls, managing the falls, managing the appointments. And then I also contribute to some client projects if it's like really within my area of specialties. But my, so the quarterly goals are we have grown somewhat quickly uh, to being able to pay two people full time. And so now it's like, how do we get that body of work, like the amount of client work managed to be really, really easy and stress-free to manage? Like, are we have a really straightforward process anytime we bring on a new client? Is as much of that that could be automated, automated? Is invoicing automated? This is to someone who isn't in business, seems like a very boring quarter, but it is basically like, are we really organized? Are we systematized? If both of, could both of us take a two week vacation at the same time, would that be okay? So now it's very much like we have a lot of things going on and how do we manage it all in a way that's like harmonious? Uh, and then from there, it's like now that we have the system built, if we got 10 times as many clients as we currently have, would we handle that or would we collapse? Uh, so I think that business growth, at least for this type of business model, because I can't speak to, sometimes the business models literally can just scale indefinitely. You know, you have an app, you put it on the cloud, the cloud can handle a million concurrent users and you just exist all the same. And we're not one of those businesses because we have humans as inputs in the output formula. And so you go up kind of really quickly and then you go straight line across to like basically collect your thoughts uh, and like reassess what the hell's going on and then grow up again quickly a lot. So now we're in kind of in our first horizontal line of just like, let's just make sure that, you know, our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed before we ask the yeah. world for more money. Yeah. Well, that, I think that something so underrated that, you know, even in our founder journey that we didn't expect was how important it is to turn your people into processes, you know, that actually scale. Um, it's, you know, all these little functions of a business from the outside looking in that you just take for granted are actually very, very difficult to set up. And I'm, I'm sure you're experiencing that firsthand. And, and like you mentioned, you know, as a team of two, the way that you scale is by making sure you have great processes in place before you scale um, your, your manpower. So I think that that in itself is, is, is quite, quite a feat. And then, you know, adding in the actual growth stuff, I, I can definitely see where this becomes, you know, a really, really difficult task. Um, speaking to though, and I, and I know you mentioned managing the marketing channels. Something I think that's interesting is, you know, when you first, you know, when you first start your business, you're doing things in unscalable ways. You know, like you mentioned, cold outbound or just finding people in your network to to engage in these projects. How did you think about setting up marketing channels and then making sure that you know once you've have them have them set up, like scaling those up and, and thoughts around that area? Yeah, I'd say that I just moved my microphone around to get a little less background noise since smart no activity started. I think it hopefully fixed it. So yeah. I learned a lot of marketing from a book by Russell Brunson. Uh, really a trilogy by Russell Brunson, but I don't want to say trilogy and then imply that someone needs to read all three books to learn marketing, nor do I want to imply that I understand marketing. But uh, that the book by Russell Brunson, Dotcom Secrets, basically it tells you everything you need to know about marketing. And the most important thing is just getting over the psychological barrier to thinking that something this you know nebulous or this ambiguous or this vast can be literally this simple. But all I break marketing down to is like who, needs your product, right? How do you get in front of them? And then how do you communicate it to them? Right? So it's, that's, those are the three pieces and I could walk you through the whole thing quickly. So sure. what's an example problem that we have, right? Is people need this migration from this website technology to this website technology. And if they don't do it by July 1st, all these bad things will happen. And that's, that's a problem. How do I find people with that problem? You know, I can go on and find a list of websites 
that haven't yet adopted the new solution. So that's the who. And then how do I get in front of them? I just find their contact info, whether it's like using a, a tool that tells you uh, a probabilistic email for that person, or it's like actually finding the owner of that company on LinkedIn and reaching out. So it's like, who has the problem? Where are they? How do I get in front of them? And then sales, marketing, whatever, it's just crafting the messaging that's like going to appeal to them. And yeah. it's basically going through that same process. That's for direct marketing, right? That's for like, I'm going to, that's really more so like sales. Again, the, the delineation between sales and marketing, that's not something I've done a great job in this conversation, but for, at least in my current role, they're functionally both my areas of responsibility. So I tend to group them. The, on the other side of it is like, I mean, really it's just how do I get, it's just different ways of getting in front of people who have your problem. And that can be nuanced in terms of like, if your goal is to have people referred to you that have your problem, right? Then it's getting in front of people who know those people. So for example, a marketing agency would know brands that haven't done this yet because it's the same type of customer. And so getting in front of them and letting them know that, hey, if any of your clients ask for this, we're the people to call. And so that's you know an extra step, but at the end of the day, that's still getting in front of the end person who has your problem. It's no mm -hmm. more complicated than figuring out who needs what you're selling and finding ways to get in front of them. And then it's just doing that efficiently yeah. and then getting better on the ways that work. And, and I think something that, you know, at least I personally have found to be difficult is, you know, after a certain number of customers, you can get in a sense of it, you know, who's your ICP, who are the people or the types of people that are coming back and using your product. And, you know, for us, we're a product, where's your service for us? Maybe that metric is they don't churn as much or they spend more uh, for y'all. It's like the recurring services, recurring projects. And, you know, the channels themselves, like, there are some, there is a list of well-defined channels that are tried and true that people have used, and maybe it's about experimenting with which one works with your company. You know, but that last piece of the puzzle is the messaging itself. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's, there's no formula to it. Every person, every buyer is different. And a lot of times, especially like you mentioned, the direct sales, you only have one shot at making sure your messaging is perfect. Uh, what do you think about when, you know, crafting your messaging and, and, and tailoring it to its best ability? Yeah, this is also one of those things that's infinitely complex, but also very, very simple. Uh, there's a word called psychographics, and I like I have a little metaphor, metaphor, uh, mnemonic, whatever, something I recall often that psychographics is greater than demographics. And that's something I think about when thinking about my messaging. So demographics are very surface level, right? Age, race, location job title, like just really basic. Psychographics is like, where's this person's psychology? Where, where's their buyer's journey, right? So I try to think of the psychographic of the person that I'm selling to based on the offer that I'm selling. So for example, a business owner with like this particular analytics thing, they might not care. So like there's, a, you have to craft your messaging such that you assume this person doesn't care. They don't care about this because they're not tech nerds. They don't care about analytics one versus analytics two or any of that it doesn't mean anything to them. So I have to understand their, their buyer psychology. They don't care about technology. They just care about, again, the health of their business. And so I have to change the messaging to communicate that, you know, by not fixing this, you're going to have X, Y, and Z happen and therefore make less money. So like that's catering the messaging to the psychological needs of that person, their wants, desires, et cetera. Whereas sometimes, uh, there are people who appeal to the technology though. That's like rarely the case, but maybe if you're like Nvidia or Dell and like you're selling gaming laptops to, to nerds, they really don't care about anything other than the nerdy specs. And you're going to lead with that. Like this is the 2000 X GB letters, numbers, whatever. 
Uh, and so it's just understanding where the, the psychology versus if I'm selling to the director of analytics, they probably think they're smarter than me because they're in charge of analytics. So maybe I have to prove to them with my messaging that I know what I'm talking about. I'm like, oh, well, the difference is it goes from event-driven to session-driven, and that means that when you create this dynamic filtering, blah, 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 blah. So it's just understanding where your buyer is psychologically and having different messaging based on that. I mean, that's not all of it, but that's one piece that's actionable for people to think about. Gotcha. So if I'm distilling this, it's don't think about, you know, what they look like, what company they work at, all the stuff that you can just see with your eyes. you got to kind of have to empathize with, like you said, the buyer's journey. What, what are they trying to accomplish with something mm -hmm. like this? What are the pains that they're having? And then really speaking to that um, in a sense that connects with them. Yeah. And so there's two pieces to it. There's a piece of prospecting and then there's a piece of targeting the message to different prospects. So prospecting, because you can't know, uh, the psychographics really has to do with once you have a group of prospects with the same characteristics, then you tell your messaging accordingly. The prospecting is what you do based on demographics. So I can say, for example, that I think the type of companies who are likely to need these services have between this many and this many employees. They don't have this type of employee on staff. They make roughly this much money. They're in this industry. Like that's going to help me build a list of people. And then once I have that list of people, I'm gonna say, okay, now that they're, they likely have this in common, this is likely their state of mind. This is how I'm gonna proceed with writing my messaging for them. Gotcha. But it's not that demographics are useless. It's just that that doesn't really inform your copy. That informs how you build your list of people in the first place. That makes sense. Okay. And so, you know, now that you've, and it sounds like, you know, a few months in that getting, really getting the swing of things and, and you're, you're talking about, you know, how can we make sure that, that we're ready to scale um, from moving on from that direct selling kind of mode to being able to scale these kinds of channels? Like, uh, what are you thinking about to ensure that, you know, that your inputs of the manpower when it comes to sales are not directly related to your outputs, you know, making sure that your marketing channels are working for you uh, while you're not actually working on them. How, how do you think about scaling these channels going forward? So there's, there's two different types, right? There's, there's, or I guess three, there's inbound marketing, outbound marketing and retention marketing. And maybe those aren't the only three types, but those are the only three types on my radar at present. And the outbound marketing, how we scale that is by just having someone who's not us doing it, right? We pay this guy X thousand per month and he handles it. Boom. And we have a backup plan if he disappears or he has a big company. When I say a person, I mean a company, right? That like if that particular person is managing it, they probably train a new account manager on it. So that's just literally just like, we pay for the service of marketing outbound. This guy is gonna send however many cold emails for us, for us per month. We assume this is the open rate. We assume this is the booked meeting rate. We assume this is the close rate. We assume this is the average deal size. We can project the health of the channel. And we can say, if we were to pay him more, then it'll probably lead to X percentage more. Obviously there's like a penetration of markets and there's upper limits to things, but that's that one. Uh, I've done less, mu less much. I've done much less thinking about the other two types of channels in terms of like how they're gonna come in. Uh, the biggest form of inbound marketing for us has been from past customers, right? The reward for doing good work is more work. And we just try to like deliver exceptional results to anyone that we work with and then build relationships where we also, again, inform them of our broader set of capabilities so that either for them or for the people they know, we are top of mind for what they do. Obviously my personal brand is super helpful for a lot of this, just like me posting on social media, really about anything just reminds people that I exist. And that might sound really silly, but you just have to remind people that you exist uh, because over the course of time, 
people will eventually potentially be in a conversion window for them or someone that they know to need what we do. Someone that they, they will or someone that they know probably need help with tech. So just like existing online, so existing in the mind of the prospect for a long period of time, such that when they actually have the need, we exist and we're the first people that they think of. And then also continuing to build a larger and larger engine of partnerships between people gotcha. who would be potential referral partners. Uh, retention marketing is what we've done the least bit of engineered work on, meaning, all, I mean, all, all it would really boil it down to is just like collecting the email addresses of everybody that we've ever worked with and sending like an email once a month that's just like, hey, here's a bit of value, right? Like, hey, did you know that this just happened in the world of data and analytics and thought you'd like to know? You know, we're still here, we still exist. But it's the same thing, right? It's just reminding the people who we've already built trust with that we still exist if they just so happen to need anything. Because people are busy and there's a lot on their mind and they might need to do this, but it's like a vague intention. And it's just about putting the offer in front of them when they're at the right stage of mind to do something with it. Gotcha. That that's interesting. Um, something that you that you said that I guess resonated with me is like you know, a lot of it seems like a lot of the core business is coming from um, customers who are actively or have recently you know used your service. Um, they're either repeat buyers or referring their friends, and it sounds like a big piece of that is making sure that you're building really good relationships with these customers and your your customer service is top tier. Um, you know, as a company. And even personally, like what are kind of like principles that, that guide you when you're building these relationships with your customers um, and that are ensuring that, that they're coming back and being repeat buyers? Yeah, so we recently started trying to articulate our company values into a nice little acronym. Uh, Orbit Metrics, we came up with the acronym of SPACE as our core values. And so one of them is like SPARK, right? First of all, we want to always just come across and present ourselves as happy people. People like to be around happy people. That's like also very simple, but very important. Versus if every time you're on the phone with a client, it's like, oh, worst day ever, uh, your work sucks. Why do you make it so hard for me? Like, I don't want to talk to you ever again. <laughs> it's like, go, go yeah. away. Uh, versus like, you know, it's not, I'm not gonna, you know, say we're the highlight of their day, but maybe we're the happiest person that they talk to that day, right? They go to the, they go to T-Mobile to run an errands. The T-Mobile person's unhappy. They go to Taco Bell. The Taco Bell person's unhappy. They go to Starbucks that person's unhappy, they go on, they turn on the news, that person's unhappy, and then they get on the phone with us. And we're like, hey, it's a gorgeous day. How you doing? Best day ever, am I right? And they're just like, what? Like, it's just like a refreshing dose of just like likability. Uh, and so that's pretty critical. And then very basic things in terms of like general relationships, like do you actually care about these people as people? Like have you put in any effort to understand anything about them besides the work that they need done? Uh, so that's one of it. So like very basic like relationship fundamentals. I say basic, a lot of people don't grasp these, but obvious things like, are you likable? And do you, do they get the impression that you care about them? And then, so that's like the spark. And then the other one is right. Pioneering. So like that's the P in space and being like cutting edge. Uh, people are going to leave us if they don't think that we're the most advanced in the industry. So that's just like being the best at what we do is really important and, or being on par with the best, right? Cause maybe we don't do anything better than anyone else, but like, there's not a better option. Like we're as good, we're as cutting edge as possible. There's like no need to go look for something more advanced because we're giving you the best you can get. Uh, a is accountability. That's just like general. We're good at meeting deadlines, being on time, being honest, just like mm -hmm. all that stuff. Just like the table stakes, like good students. It's kind of like the good student check mark. It's like you do stuff on time. You meet ex you you follow instructions. You like you don't screw things up. Uh, the C is collaboration. That's an internal value, but just like you know, we work together as a team. 
And then the E is exceptional, which is like the quality of work, right? We deliver like fantastic work. So like that's the formula we have for retaining customers is like, we're extremely happy. We're happy to be here. We care about you as people. We give you the best in the, mar in the industry and the quality is exceptional. So it's like, they're gonna mm -hmm. come back for more. In terms of like the, that sounds a little fluffy, even though like it's not, it's just facts. But the non-fluffy part of that is I only actively try to sell one service. But the thing about tech is like tech's very trust driven because a lot of people have been burned by like delegating something technical to someone, paying a developer, you know, that you've never met, that doesn't speak your language and being like, you understand me? And they're like, yes, I understand you. And you're like, all right, here's $5,000. And they're like, here's something so far off what you asked for. And they're like, like so many people are just burned with bad experiences with tech in general, trying to get other people to do tech for them that mm -hmm. by doing something well in tech for someone once, we're immediately their trusted like wizard. You know what I mean? So it's like anything vaguely technical, we're gonna be the first person they ask for help with going forward. And that's why we try to start with like something small, easy win. Website migration, quick and easy. We'll do it quickly. We're not gonna screw it up. And then they're like, this is the tech wizards. These are the wizards. Give them all your problems. They're yeah, the first I love reliable it. people I've ever worked for in, te in tech ever. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the accountability thing, what you you did say, you know, like accountability kind of speaks mm -hmm. for itself. But I think, you know, in in startup land, a lot of people are not accountable. You know, it's it's maybe sometimes not a fall of the founders, but things are moving so fast. You never know what breaks and what doesn't yep. that um, it's hard to be accountable. So so keeping that in the core. And I think that even customers who who work a lot with startups expect them to not be accountable, which is almost, yeah. which is almost surprising. And I think it's, it's really awesome that that's, that's one of the pillars. And that's um, what I said, dude, we, we yeah. have to slow down right now. Like to meet, to meet our own expectations, to meet our own standards, to meet our own values of staying accountable. We need to slow down for a little bit because we're not organized enough to take on twice as much work and still be accountable. So we'd rather grow slower until we're buttoned up enough to then stay accountable for a larger quantity of work. It's, it's the long-term game. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That, that was exactly what I was going to say. It seems like you're playing a long-term game, which is uh, one of my favorite games to play compared to the short-term ones. Um, the pioneering part too was, was, was really cool because I think even at Clips AI, we have this thing where, you know, we're all trying to be the best in the world at what we do. Um, and we've tried to bake that into, you know, how we operate, you know, how we live every day and then how we work every day. Um, for y'all, like, what are those things that, that you do to, to push each other and make sure that y'all are being the best in the world as people, as individuals, and then how that you know reflects through in the company at being the best in the world at what you do. Yeah, I don't want this to sound egotistical to say it's a personality trait, but it's like, you know, my our CTO, our head of fulfillment, my business partner, whatever, uh, he's just a giga nerd, right? He's just a super nerd about our niche. It's like, he's just his type of person to just always be reading about, you know, he re like when I catch him watching YouTube, it's like new, newest and latest and greatest new Google Cloud tech library BS. I don't know. I care about it too. But like I've kind of like turned off the nerd brain so that I'm capable of being <laughs> on the marketing brain. Like I couldn't do both. And so I had, to, I had to put that aside for a while. And, but he spends his spare time, dude, just like reading about what's the latest and greatest in tech and in cloud and in data. And that's when I say, so, you know, that most of the heavy lifting is done for us, right? We're not creating the greatest, like we're not beating Google, right? We're not like, making the best database technology is two people. Like I'm not trying to delude anyone into thinking that's what's happening. We just read an industry blog that tells us if this is actually still the best tool on the market. And if it's not, we're gonna to move to the new one. And if it is, 
like if it's not you know what I'm saying it's like I, I don't know why yep. I lose track of those little logic games all the time <laughs> but we just read and make sure that we're like using so all of the hard work is done for us like our only job is to make sure that we're using the right tools and that's just not that hard if you're a super nerd who cares about that which we fortunately have one on the team yeah well I think that's the parallels right now between you know what you just described and what am I and my CTO is is almost frightening. So uh, happy Sounds to like know that hopefully my, he's a good CTO then. Yeah, so. no, he's a great CTO. So it's it's great to know that that he's um, he's going in the right direction. That's awesome. Yeah, I think the the think thing about books, though, I'll say yeah. it does actually need to be a better solution. Like using the newest technology is not always the right idea if it does actually make the end product better for the client. Right. So like it's, mm-hmm. there's a bit of a trap there potentially to be like, Hey, this new thing came out. It's really cool. We should use it. But it's like, does it do anything that the other tool wasn't capable of that we needed it to be capable of? There's a difference between like using best in class for the sake of it versus like it actually allows you to do something important because otherwise you're just getting distracted and becoming, cause when you adopt a new tool, you have to adopt new processes and train people and that's net inefficient. So it has to be a justified upgrade. I'll say. Yeah. And- and so how do you, cause, cause for us, like we, we, we use a lot of AI tools mm-hmm. um, as part of the whole solution that we bake into our product and things are moving really quickly and it seems like there's a new solution all yeah, the time to for tools you, that we're using. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, and this, that, that, I guess that's one of the, the, one of the um, features that not a bug that comes along with this space, but for y'all, like how do you wait or, or toe that line of, you know, all these shiny new toys and then making sure that these are actually the best outputs for your customers. And especially, you know, with two people, it feels like really high switching costs to have to move back and forth uh, between these tools. So, so the, how do you think about that? I think it's just about, you know, the discipline to like business is allowed to be fun, but that's not a requirement for it to be fun, if that makes sense. Like at the end of the day, our clients aren't paying us. Some of them are for the sake of using the latest and greatest thing. That's, that's kind of like an enterprise thing. That's very much a virtue signaling thing. That's like, are they paying us to say that they're using the greatest stuff or are they paying us because there's something they need done that they want us to do for them? And like, we're vastly the majority of the time in the other camp. Right. And it's just really like, does this, is this new tool necessary and net helpful emphasis on the net to help this client achieve what they hired us to achieve? And if it's not, they just got to like, be like, that's cool, but I'll look at that in my free time. Gotcha. That makes sense. It's okay, just like, cool. sometimes you got to kill. Yeah your interests. You just got to save it for, for after work. Like I can nerd out about that later, but this client really could not care. They just want the outcome. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys ever have this feeling of like sitting, sitting, um, at the table with your, with your co-founder and just like thinking of all the crazy possibilities that you could be doing and just like having to tell yourself, okay, you can do that later. At we some put them in a point. list, put them in a, yeah. the, the later list. Yeah. <laughs> you got a business to run in the meantime. Um, very cool. I, I guess like moving toward towards the end, end of this episode, something that you mentioned earlier was how strong your personal brand is, especially with you know how successful your podcast has been, um, and that really being a huge lever of content marketing for y'all. How do you kind of prioritize or characterize content marketing in this space, not only for you personally, but um, for your company? How, how do you make those decisions? Um, are you employing content? Um, and what do you think the power of content really is? Yeah, I think I am at the point of the conversation where I don't have a really well thought out framework. Uh, not to say that all my other frameworks were well thought out, but they're certainly better thought out than, than this right now. So the role that content's played in my life broadly is that content creation is a really powerful vehicle to learn and to meet people as an individual. 
So it's been a big part of my personal journey of learning things that are relevant to what I wanna do and for meeting people that are relationships that are helpful for what I wanna do. And all of the audience building, you wanna call it, that comes with that have been a very positive and welcome side effect, but not the point. And that's still how I justify it because the outcomes in terms of benefits to the business that come from me producing content are still too difficult to predict to justify doing, right? That, that can't be the justification for why I do these things because I just don't have a, enough of a record to say like, this is how many clients I brought in because of the podcast. So if I do 20 more episodes with these types of people and these types of clips, we can expect this much more revenue, therefore I should do it. I don't have that data to be able to say that. I just mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. but what I can say is that I needed to learn about this thing to grow the business. I put out an episode with a person who was an expert in that thing, and I left that conversation feeling more confident within my knowledge of that thing. And that led me to being more effective in my role in the business. So that's the only deliberate role I can say content has played in the business. Any kind of serendipitous benefit in terms of financial reward or clients has been just that, serendipitous. It's been great and unexpected and amazing, but not part of the predictable formula. Whereas, like I said, with cold email, all right, let's send 10,000 cold emails, 10 of 10% 10 of them get opened, 10% of those go to book calls, 10% of those close, 10% of them convert to two months. We should be able to spend at least, I don't know, half the time, half, let's say that leads to $10,000 in business value. If we spend $5,000 on another batch of cold emails, I feel good in making that and get that gamble, that investment, whatever you want to call it. But I don't have the same answer for podcasting besides just like I'm investing in me, a resource in the business to be better at my job and using content as a way to do that. And all of the other benefits have been ancillary. Gotcha. And that's been the yeah. other reason why I've been able to stay in the game for so long with podcasting is because that's kind of been my expectation from the outset. So I've been doing this for more than three years. I've been doing this for more than 150 episodes. And it is very hard to turn content into dollars, predictably. It's very difficult to do that. Uh, it's difficult to want get people to buy from you. It's difficult to find a right offer, to have a niche. Uh, so people quit because it wasn't successful, right? Their measure of success was dollars. It didn't lead to dollars, they quit. But for me, the measure of success for producing content has been, has this been enjoyable, right? Was the process intrinsically rewarding? And do I feel as if the value of what I have learned exceeds the perceived cost in terms of money I've spent on editors and uh, opportunity cost of hours I've not spent working and emotional investments into doing it uh, in terms of all of those all of those factors that go into the effort required in getting it done. Do I feel as if the perceived learnings, the type of person that I've become that I do not feel I would have become had I not been doing this is worth it? And that's been the only measure of success. And because I do feel like I've learned tremendous things of value that have propelled me further in life than I would be without it in excess of the cost, I keep doing it. Gotcha. I think that's that's very well said, especially, you know, in, I'm biased towards content marketing. Our space that we yeah. work in is content marketing, um, but I do agree it's 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 very difficult to turn your content into dollars. And I, I think I just that, haven't done it successfully. Yeah. So I mean, I don't yeah. want to like if we. I, I, I've been very uh, some some podcasts. I kind of show up in a very meme state of mind, and just I don't know who that helps. But I've not been very memey on this podcast, which is probably a good thing. There's a podcast on I was on the other week, and maybe since it was a crypto podcast, I just felt like I could just kind of be a little. Uh, unhinged and derailed and, and just kind of <laughs> meme. But this is maybe, you know, someone might be listening to this and, and say my last answer is cope, uh, which to some extent it is, right? To your point, like if I had figured out the formula to turn content marketing into dollars, if I had the evidence that I know how to do that, 
I would be saying 100% do it. This is how to do it. This is how it works. It's not a game I figured out yet, transparently. So I'm not going to say it's not a game that's worth playing and it's not a game worth figuring out. I'm just not the person to give you advice for how to play that game successfully. But I can tell you that it's been worthwhile even without those outcomes for me. Got you. Wow. But maybe you should bring on a content marketing expert who's like, yeah, bro, set up a podcast, do this, this, and this, dollars. Boom. I'm just yeah. not that guy yet. Yeah, makes sense. I, I think, yeah, I, I definitely will need to do that now in the future and, and really compare those answers. Because there's people who do know how to do that, right? I've just, yeah. I figured out other games for now. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you play the games that you're best at because that's what mm -hmm. leads you to the most success. Um, okay, very cool. Uh, I think that was, that was a lot of great advice. I guess um, wrapping up, like, you know, for the person who's maybe my age, your age even, you know, ready to take that jump, whether it's, you know, changing that mindset um, into doing something entrepreneurial or even maybe it's making content or, or just doing anything. Like, what's that, what was that spark? You mentioned spark earlier. What was that spark for you and, and what would you say should should be a spark for them? Yeah, I'm uh, doing a lot of mindset work right now. I'm working with a coach uh, just to, like, really help me kind of level up and uh, accelerate even more aggressively. And he's been telling me more so to like try to move towards things rather than away from things. And then if that's great advice, but for me, the spark at the beginning was definitely away, a spark away from things I didn't want at the beginning. And it's just really internalizing. I mean, it was both, right? So it was things that I didn't want. So it was jobs where I didn't like the constraints on my time. I didn't like the uh, relationship between my effort and my pay. I didn't like that at all. And I was like, I don't, I will not be happy in this environment. That's not something I'm willing to like restructure my brain to make work. So that was like a pain. I was like, I don't want this. And then it also was an appeal. Like I just, again, back to the role model thing. Uh, anyone who I ever found as a role model, not anyone, but the vast majority of people I ever found as a role model were entrepreneurs. And that's on a, a soul level, like on a resonance level in terms of like the people whose lives resonate with me where I'm like, I would like to have a life like that person. The vast, vast, vast majority of them were entrepreneurs. So for me, I didn't really have a choice because it was kind of like, wake up and not feel like I'm living true to myself, which is torturous, or go for it. And in terms of, if, but if that's not the case for you, like if you don't have that level of like inner turmoil, it's like some people are wired to not be that way. And that's super okay. And like, there's an argument that that would be easier, but I don't know. Uh, if you are wired the other way, it's like, you know, it's not gonna go away until you do something about it. That's just the, the hard part. But it's a lot of it is framing. Framing is so key. I've talked about framing many, many times on this podcast. Like one, is it necessary to succeed right now? Is it necessary to go from wherever you're right now, and maybe you're just a college student, uh, to running a business and being successful? No, I had two two jobs. I worked for a full year uh, before leaving those jobs, and even still, right? Like my business partner brought me in on a salary. Like I didn't go from zero. Like there's there's ways to do it. Uh, and again, now, uh, like I'm running the business, and there's a lot of accountability. And if I fail, the business fails. It's like it's very entrepreneurial, but the uh, the point of it is that you have to allow for some flexibility in terms of how it can play out and also some flexibility in terms of like just seeing the hybrid path, right? The Buddhist, seeing, seeing the middle way in terms of like you can have a job and a side project for a long time. That's what my business partner who started this business did, right? He, he had a full-time job, then he had a side project, and then eventually the side project had a clear path towards making money. And he said, you know what? I'm going to double down on that. Versus like taking the, like you don't need to make it all or nothing. That's just like a huge, 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 very much like a, a college student type failed, like silly belief. That's like, oh, it's all or nothing. I mean, they're an entrepreneur or I'm not an entrepreneur. It's like, no, it's like, you gotta pay your bills. You probably don't wanna like be broke. 
It doesn't have to suck, totally. It doesn't have to soak completely. Uh, it's allowed to be easy. It's allowed to be fun. It's allowed to be on the side. You don't have to go all in at once. Uh, and again, depending on like your timelines, if your goal is to succeed in within a year, you probably have to go all in at once, but is it necessary, right? Like there's an argument that you should probably, like, are you setting yourself up from the outset strategically in a way where you're also going to enjoy the journey? Like, are you going to look back on this on the next year reflectively and be like, that was the year that had to suck such that I could be in this position now. Or do you say, this is going to be a two year journey. That's not going to suck. And I'm also going to live my life over the two year journey. And I'm going to put in half as much effort for twice as much time and take that pressure off of myself to succeed in that intensive a way. Like we just kind of, yeah. so positive constraints, a term I mentioned earlier can be arbitrary and helpful and they can also be arbitrary and unhelpful. So like people read a book, they see that a friend of theirs, you know, was a perceived overnight success. Therefore, if they're not that they failed, I'm like, what if your goal is to have a successful business by the end of this decade? And in the meantime, you're still going to make friends and you're still going to be in good shape and you're still going to have fun and you're still going to have like a healthy soul and just, you know, three hours, Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, you spend three hours after work building something really consistently, but there's an argument to go the other way. I'm just saying like my advice to people is to have something that you're working on that is entrepreneurial so that you can affirm the identity. You can affirm the identity that you are an entrepreneur or that you are entrepreneurial. It's like, you don't have to run every single day to consider yourself a runner. Just if like running is part of your life and then running is part of your routine, I would be happy to call you a runner. You don't have to leave everything behind and burn every available option to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I think you have to be putting consistent effort in to something entrepreneurial consistently to be an entrepreneur, but it does not need to come at the expense of everything that you're doing. And a lot of things that you learn can be helpful as an entrepreneur later without throwing it all away and starting from zero at the outset. Gotcha. A lot of, of good, of good advice in there. If I had to bring a few words away from that, it'd probably be, um, you know, take calculated risks, follow your gut, learn to optimize for a life that you actually enjoy. It doesn't always have to suck, but if it needs to suck for a little bit, just it can. Trying to be like, just a, making a plan where part of the plan is you're unhappy for most of the plan. It just means you're really bad at planning. <laughs> It's just like, God, you made the plan. Like you're in charge of the plan. Why did you make this plan? If your plan requires heroic effort to succeed, that's a bad plan. True. If it requires yeah, large but... periods of unhappiness, that is a bad plan. Yeah. It's just, but... there's a there's a bigger picture, guys. Can't yeah, forget that. There is a bigger picture. There's a life to live, even after all, even after all these businesses that, that you that you try and fail and some succeed. Um, but yeah, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Um, thanks so much, Lewis, for your time, um, talking a lot about your business, how you came here, and just a lot of great advice for um, young entrepreneurs. Uh, we'll link all, all, the, you know, the, all the info in the show notes, um, Orbit Metric, the Lewis and Kyle show, and I think even that podcast about the, or, sorry, the blog about the positive constraints. Um, I'm going to read that after this, but I'm sure some of our uh, listeners will, will, will benefit from it. So um, thanks again, Lewis. It was a pleasure. Um, really enjoyed having this conversation. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate the invite. Awesome. Thanks so much.